You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode of Startups for Good, I speak with Professor Dean Carlin from Northwestern. He teaches both at Kellogg at the School of Management there and is Global Poverty Research Lab co-director. He's the author of many books, two I can recommend, More Than Good Intentions and The Goldilocks Challenge. That last one has a section I really like about designing KPIs for nonprofit. Definitely recommend that. He's also the founder of many organizations. He is the president of Innovations for Poverty Action, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to discovering and promoting solutions to global poverty. They work to scale up successful ideas about implementations and disseminate to policymakers, practitioners, investors, and donors what those good ideas are and what makes them work. They operate in 50 plus countries. They've got offices in many of those and have something like a thousand employees, a really impressive uh, scale, particularly for a nonprofit. He also started Impact Matters, which recently was acquired by Charity Navigator. We'll talk about that. And a for-profit startup called Stick. His research focuses on development and behavioral economics, and he's on the board of directors of MIT's Poverty Action Lab. He got his PhD in economics from MIT, multiple graduate degrees from University of Chicago, and bachelor's from University of Virginia. I think you'll enjoy this, so please stay tuned. Dean, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks for coming on. Sure, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to get into this with you. Uh, where I'd like to start is you had an academic career, which is still going very well. Why do you choose to be a founder? <laughs> um, well, you know, as a researcher, as an academic, we get involved in a lot of exciting ideas. And sometimes it's, um, I think there's two different spirits and that kind of drive us to, or some of us to think outside of just pure academic. One is when sometimes the research leads to something that you think can actually be done in the real world, that it's it's not, it's it's an idea that actually could has, have legs and be something that um, can help people in some way. And so let's go try it. Let's go do it. Let's go do it for real. Let's not just set up lab experiments and, you know, um, and, um, you know, clinical trials where it's very controlled, but let's actually go and like test our ideas out in the wild. And this um, seems to be a theme of your academic work even is that line of how can knowing better help us do better? That That's right. A lot of times we don't, I don't, you know, I don't think about like creating something to I, I, I am able to just work with a partner who's, who's doing something that's proximate and then we can brainstorm together and they're the doers and we're the studiers. But there are other cases sometimes where it's, I've been involved in the actual doing. Um, you know, the other is on the nonprofit side, the, the you know, creating things is because there's a void. There's a, there's a market failure. For some reason, institutions not exist that is doing something that we think um, can happen, can be done, is scalable. Um, can line up financing, can provide value to the world in some way. And so let's go do it. And is that how IPA started? That's exactly how IPA started. Uh, IPA started IPA's Innovations for Poverty Action, as you know. 
And I started this right when I finished graduate school and it was recognizing a few different things that were missing. But one of which was that we were um, just starting off in a, as, as a researcher and other researchers who just won the Nobel Prize last year for being leaders in economics and social science in pushing out a movement for randomized control trials. But a lot of that work to do those randomized control trials requires really talented people working with partner organizations, collecting data, doing a lot of, a lot of nitty gritty detailed work that's about uh, working with partners to implement change internally for those organizations. It's about collecting data, managing surveyors, all of this work. And the reality is we needed an organization that was gonna help us do that. Um, we didn't, um, uh, you know, we can't just have like a rotating set of graduate students that kind of go in the field and spend three months. And then three months later, it's another set of grad students that's just, that's very risky. It's not always in line with what a grad student should be doing. There's lots of reasons why that's not a good, stable, long run system. And, and also the other thing we realize is there's just huge economies of scope that if, if there's a great team that is helping me in Peru or the Philippines, which were our first two countries to set up research or in India where it was helping Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee or in Kenya where it was helping Michael Kramer. The reality is those awesome people in those countries can help more than just our, that small set of researchers. That once they're there and they're experienced and knowledgeable about how to do that kind of work, that there's a huge economy of scale that can be had by helping other researchers also use that knowledge, that infrastructure, that human capital to help coordinate their similar um, similar studies. And so that was the kind of one of the, the birthing ideas of IPA. The, the second was also recognizing that as academics, we have huge incentives to write academic papers, but not so much to influence policy. And that's yet that's not why a lot of us got into the kind of work we're doing, including myself. Um, we got into it because of a humanitarian interest in, in seeing that there's problems in the world and, and the, a strong belief that more evidence can really help improve the way policy is done by, like, by governments, by nonprofits. And so we want to see our research, when appropriate, change lives. But that's not you, that's not going to get done by just writing academic papers and then thinking the world's going to download them and, and and use them. That's just that's crazy. Um, we need to work with people who are really committed to that policy process. And so that was the other motivating um, motivation for creating IPA. You heard it here first, folks, a professor admitting that not everyone reads his papers. Oh, my gosh. Far from that. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, if you were going to give an example of IPA's work so that people can understand it more tangibly, how would you do it? So the, the, the lion's share of IPA's work has been supporting and conducting randomized control trials. So it's basically taking the principles from that we're kind of, I mean, you know, in today's day with COVID, everybody's quite familiar with randomized control trials that were done for vaccines. And, and there's a reason why we waited for those randomized control trials to happen before everybody starts feeling comfortable that this is a, a, a vaccine that, you know, that we can feel good about. And it's taking that same discipline in thinking about safety and prudence and, and causality of policy to, to the change that we hope to create in the world. And it's taking that to uh, many, many, many domains from cash transfer programs to programs like microcredit to training programs, 
communications, text messaging about health or savings, financial services, corruption, education programs, million million questions like that, where that where where just following someone over time doesn't really tell you, or following a group of people over time, or communities or schools over time doesn't really tell you which program caused what change. And a randomized control trial is better able to do that than, than most other methods in those contexts. Obviously, there's a lot of contexts where you can't do it, and I want to be clear, right? It's not a one-size-fit-all you know, panacea for all development questions. But when it is appropriate, it can really help move the needle in establishing that a certain policy in this context causes a certain set of changes to happen. And you've been a real pioneer in applying evidence to these types of situations. Although not everyone agrees, even today, you hear criticism pushing back that, you know, we don't have the money to spend on it. We don't have the time. The problem's too urgent. Or I've even heard, you know, just because you do an RCT in a couple of different places doesn't mean it's going to apply to the next. Or someone saying, you know, it's common sense. We know what's right. We just need to do more of it. There was a handful. I can, I'm happy to talk. Yeah, there's a lot there, but I'm curious. Do you see that people are becoming more accepting of this idea over time, or is there um, has there been a change? There's, I mean, there's definitely been a shift over time. I mean, it is. There's no doubt. You can look. There's. I've seen a few graphs. I realize this is a podcast, so I can't give you a graph. But there's been a huge number of. Um, there, there, there have been data that have been tracked and showing that the. You know, likelihood of um, that. You know, there's just a lot more randomized control trials now than there were 20 years ago on these questions. There's no doubt. Um, um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of situations where it's not the right tool to answer a question, but there's a lot of situations where it's become much more standard. You know, when I first started in these kinds of conversations, you know, roughly the year 2000, and and it was definitely the case that a lot of conversations had to start off by explaining what we mean by a randomized control trial, why we are proposing that kind of method for answering these questions. And whereas now, it's not to say we never, I never find myself engaged in that conversation, but it's actually fairly rare. More often than not, we are, you know, there's a partner that reaches out to us saying, hey, we saw a study that used this method that seems very appealing to us. Um, please work with us to implement a study of that nature. And we're actually spending a lot more, less time convincing someone that randomization is good and a lot more time really actually helping, trying to figure out what the research question should be, what the what are their operational challenges, what are, and, and how, how can we best make the research serve their purposes. Right, and could you share with our listeners a little bit about the scale and size of IPA today? Sure, so we got, um, we grew very fast um, in the early years. Lately, we've kind of, you know, been a bit more stable. We have run randomized control trials in over 51 countries. Um, I believe the current count is uh, 21 country offices where we emphasize our work. And the country office is actually a really important concept for us because a lot of the relationships and the policy influence that I mentioned earlier, that doesn't happen by you know, remotely very well. And so by having a country office, we're able to really build better relationships with local government, local policymakers, local NGOs, local academics, 
And a lot of the use of evidence to influence what they're doing comes about through a relationship, through years of years of discussion and helping to make the research more, more suited to answering the questions they have, as well as building, building trust and, and the conversation over a, long, over a long time. And so that's an important part of IPA's principle for how we go about doing our work is to really promote these country offices and, and try to think for the long run. Now, in terms of, uh, we have, a, I, I think at any one point in time, we have roughly about a thousand people on payroll now, but about half of that are people who are um, in a sense, more permanent or long-term um, employees. And about half are responsible for data collection. So at any point in time, we have a lot of surveys that are you know, happening. And, and as part of a survey, there might be someone hired for a one-month contract to do a survey. And so that's about half of the half of the employees, and the other half are more, you know, kind of employment at will or you know, one to two year kind of engagements to help manage a project. Um, and I think we've done now over 800 randomized controlled trials, and we have about 400 or 500 researchers that have worked with us. So that kind of the what I mentioned earlier about our early days when it was just a few handful of researchers, you know, one of the most exciting things that we were able to do fairly early on is figure out how can we, how can we make sure that we're building a community here and helping other people who don't have, you know, just have one project and they can't build infrastructure for one project. How can we, how can we help support that? How can we put a lot, invest a lot in things like methods issues about data collection and data quality, things, like, things of this nature, which might get overlooked, and, but that can really help a lot of people. That's wonderful. It's a true scale and so impressive uh, to see a nonprofit in particular scale like that. Uh, what was one of the biggest challenges along the way? I think the, the biggest challenge I think I think we still face um, is just that we are we're putting a lot of interested parties together who share a common vision, a common idea that you know evidence can really help move the needle on improving the proven policy. But at the end of the day, everyone is not perfectly aligned. Academics have their needs and desires, and implementers have theirs, funders have theirs, and um, juggling all of that can can often be can often be tricky. Um, and so that's you know, it's a good challenge to take on. It's one that we embrace, and I think it's our strongest value added is doing that well. But it's it is it, it, you know it does pose all sorts of operational challenges. It poses everything from like financing challenges to contracting issues that are you know important to important to deal with, but can can be a challenge. I think the broader challenge I would say is, despite all of the success that we've had in in helping, like I said, about eight hundred randomized controlled trials, it's still the tip of the iceberg. There's still you know there's so much there's so many competing forces that fight against evidence. Um, everything from our human nature of feeling like, well, if I see it with my own eyes, well, then I don't need evidence. Well, that's just not true. Um, to politics, to funding that, you know, so there's, there's a lot of competing forces and it's not, you know, it's not always so easy as to say, well, as long as we know that A works better than B, let's just, that'll be great. And as long as we make that clear with a nice little bar chart where A's bar is higher than B's, then won't that be won't we problem solved? And we just show that to people, and that's just not how it works. And so that's you know always a continuous effort and continuous struggle, where we've had some you know exhilarating success, but 
but still the tip of the iceberg in terms of the, the kinds of problems that are out there where more evidence can go a long way to helping to solve a problem and, and you just keep at it. Yeah, that must be really frustrating when you feel like you're generating that evidence, but it's not influencing policymakers. You know, usually it's for good reason, right? It's not it's not because there's like, oh, you just know so much and no it, it's usually that there's some there's some reason why there's there's an operational challenge to doing something. There's a funding bottleneck. There's a there's maybe the evidence too is 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 weak and it goes to something you asked earlier. Maybe it's you know from one context and we're working in a different context. Will the evidence translate over here? Well, we think it will, but but there's reasons why it may not. And so, you know. You maybe you need more evidence, and um, and you know so there can be you know good reasons why someone says that's interesting. Not going to do it. Right. I'd like to think that if that's the case, their answer is that's interesting. Not going to do it without further evidence, and let's go get it. And now we can decide if we're going to then scale it. Now it's in in kind of a sense the the ideal, but um, but it's not always that easy. Do you think that the lean startup methodology? can be used in this kind of context? Um, so, I mean, broadly speaking, yes. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think we've seen with that, are, that do undergo the kind of evidence that we're talking about with a randomized control trial that are testing something that came out of a lean startup kind of concept. In a sense, that's actually easier because a lot of times as an academic, when we're trying to study the impact of something, we kind of like it when that something is super well-defined. It makes it easier to get your head around what is it that's happening? Why might it be happening? Is it generalized knowledge that, that can help in many other contexts or not? And, and to do that, a lot of times there's actually a push for things to be kind of really focused and narrow and almost simple. And you know where we end up, and so that's actually very much in the lean startup kind of mindset of a very simple app or device or something of this nature. When things get really complicated, when there's a program and a policy that says, we're gonna do 17 things, there's gonna be some irrigation, there's gonna be some child nutrition, we're gonna send messages about vaccines, we're gonna do all these things, we're gonna do all at once. If you try evaluating that, you might, you might be able to speak to the stakeholder who paid for it to say, did you get, what did you get for your money? but you're gonna be much harder pressed to ge create generalized knowledge that helps inform other players about how they can address problems they're facing in their communities. And so that's that's kind of the other end of the spectrum from the lean startup model, right? So, so in a sense that I think the worlds are fairly aligned on that, the, the lean startup world and the, and the RCT world. Gotcha. And IPA is not the only organization you've started. In fact, I think congratulations are in order for Impact Matters being acquired by Charity Navigator. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it's very, it's been an exciting year for us. That's probably the only good thing I'll ever think about from 2020. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess we got two, uh, two good things happening. So, you know, backing up a bit with IPA, as we've mentioned, we're, you know, kind of built around the idea of generating knowledge about what works and what doesn't. And a lot of times we would get an inquiry, I get an inquiry, a personal inquiry, or we would get one to IPA that says, hey, that's interesting. Where do I send? I'm, I'm a donor and I'd like to support a nonprofit that does the work that you found good evidence for. And while it's true that there's occasionally a study that is really focused on like the entirety of what a nonprofit does, usually that's not the case. Usually it's not. 
Usually the research is about some idea and it might be one program of an NGO. It might be, it might even be something more narrow than that. And so the odds that some, if someone were to call up uh, us up at IPA and say, hey, I have a name of a charity, you know, should I support them? There was almost zero probability that we would have a code clean randomized control trial of exactly what that nonprofit happens to be doing to be able to tell them like, well, this is what the evidence says. And IPA also did not want to be in that business of ranking charities because charities were our partners for implementing. And, and if we were then at the same time in the business of having them compete with each other, that's, that doesn't work well with our, our model of being the in-between between the researchers and the implementer. And so that's why we wanted to create an entity whose task was how can we help donors know which charities have more likely positive impact? So which are the which are the good charities, so to speak? And and what was out there was there was basically two two organizations that were out there that were fairly large scale. One was GiveWell, which used a lot of randomized control trials from IPA, which made us very happy. But they would only name the very top ones, and I, I admire them a lot for what they have done, what they've accomplished, and the money they've moved. But they really only helped the kind of individual who said, "Hey." I read about your philosophy and the way you think about impact, and and I and I and I love it. So tell me where to donate. Great, never heard of them, but I believe you. Good, I'm going to send my money. But the reality is, most donors don't behave that way. I think most donors have a charity in mind. They want to support their local homeless shelter. There is some scholarship program for minority kids in their community, and they want to know is that charity any good. And that's not helped when, when you're only naming six charities in the entire world. You can't help those kinds of donors. And so the group that was out there that was helping those kinds of donors was, was Charity Navigator, which is the group we have now merged with. The historical challenge for Charity Navigator is that they would use overhead ratios as their proxy for impact. But there's really not much good research. In fact, if anything, I think the you know, evidence goes the opposite direction that says that overhead ratios are are actually good proxies for impact. It's just really easy to use them. They're, it's publicly available data filed with the IRS, so you can get that data for thousands and thousands and thousands of nonprofits. But that doesn't mean it's actually, actually a measure of impact. And so we built a model for different cause areas to try to estimate what the social science research combined with the output evidence, the, and, and if they did actually have impact evidence as well, from nonprofits to build estimates. And so we built estimates for about 1,500 nonprofits. And that was about a year ago. And, and we you know, had been always talking with Charity Navigator a lot over the years and partnering with them as much as we could. And they had a, you know, they've always had an interest in, in including impact information, but they just hadn't done it. And so that's where the merger made total sense. We're like, well, we've done this for 1,500. We can do it for more. We weren't, you know, we didn't care about our brand. So we saw it as a way of, if we can get inside the market leader and help them put impact inside their rating system, then we've won. That's, that's our goal. And so we got rid of the brand and we're now inside them uh, helping to uh, basically integrate our methods into their impact ratings. Well, congratulations again on that. Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. What's a startup tech nonprofit, you ask? A startup is an organization seeking to grow that is new, 
tech, meaning using software to scale with lower to zero marginal cost, and nonprofit, meaning organized as a public charity. So support innovation by seeding nonprofits leveraging technology to scale. Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. Can you explain and break it down a little bit more basic uh, terms when you say like overhead ratios and measuring impact, sure. what those two things mean? So an overhead ratio, when, you, when, a, when a nonprofit reports their financials to the IRS, they have to report three numbers. They report a lot of numbers, but there's three numbers that, that are kind of high, highlighted. One is how much, um, let's say their overall expenditures for the year are a million dollars. Um, of that million dollars, how much of that was spent on what's called program services? So that could be cash transfers if they're providing cash. It could be the cost of food if they're providing food. It could also be the cost of labor if they're providing training for entrepreneurship or job training. And then it's the cost of the employees who, who are leading those classes and leading those sessions. A second line is what's called administrative. And this is um, these are things like the accountants and the controller and the CFO and part of the CEO usually. And then a third line is the fundraising costs. And that's your director of development. It might be the cost of direct mail. It might be part of your CEO salary. And so overhead ratios refers to basically adding up those second two categories and dividing by the total overall expenditures of the nonprofit. And the basic idea that was put forward years ago, which I think is a bit unfortunate for the space is like, hey, we want that ratio to be low so that more of the money donated is going to program services. And that causes actually a fair amount of distortions. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing only for getting rid of fraud, I want to be clear. The, the, there's definitely some organizations out there that are basically fraudulent. Maybe more than half of their money is spent on fundraising and overhead, and that's a sign of something, something not right. But there's very few organizations that are like that. Uh, last I saw, it was about 2% of nonprofits have, have more than half of their money spent on overhead. It's a very tiny problem. And those are not organizations that most people have ever heard of. They're very, they're kind of weird organizations that do lots of phone banking to fundraise and things like this. So the, you know, the problem though, of course, is like in some sense, why do you care how the sausage is made? If you know that there's two organizations and you know that they both are spending a million dollars. One of them says, oh, 80% of that goes to program services. And the other says 60% of that goes to program services. But the one that's 60% is actually having a bigger impact for their million dollars. I prefer that one, right? They're, that means for the million dollars, they're creating a bigger impact than the other one is for a million dollars. And what goes into what line on their tax returns? I don't really care. So. The only reason to ever look at that is if you have no idea whatsoever what their impact is. But if you actually have some estimate of the impact, you should throw away all information about overhead. With I put a little asterisk on that with the exception of the fraud. You can do that to do the first filter, like don't even bother looking at a nonprofit that, that is spending half their money on overhead. So that's the that's the basic point is that you know everybody when they're focused on overhead, it's not that they actually care about their overhead, they just care about it as a proxy for impact. But so then why don't we just try to tackle the measurement of impact better? And let's just come up with more direct measures of impact rather than using proxies. Particularly when the proxy, there's lots of reasons to think that that might be completely flipped around in the, in the wrong direction. You know, an organization which is being really thoughtful about how they design their program 
and hiring senior management staff that are really experienced and knowledgeable and investing in, in evidence. Going back to the first part of our conversation, they're investing and in thinking about what the right way is to write, run this program. They're probably gonna have a bigger impact, I think, but yet their overhead ratios are gonna actually look bigger. And that's unfortunate because then you get hurt if someone is just looking at overhead ratios when in fact, for their overall budget, they're having a bigger impact. So how do you measure impact? Broadly speaking, there's, you know, there's primary data and then there's secondary data, right? So you know, in, if we go back to the first part of the conversation with innovations for poverty action, we would work with an organization to set up a primary data collection exercise with a randomized control trial to measure their impact. Now, secondary is when a secondary process, which is what Impact Matters went through, because Impact Matters did not work with organizations to collect new data. Instead, what Impact Matters would do is look and see, well, do you have any impact evaluations that we can use? And we can look at those, we can evaluate those, and if they're good, and we can use those to build, a, build an estimate of your impact. Or in, in the case of a lot of organizations, they didn't have their own impact evaluation, but they did actually have good enough data about what their activities were. And the social science literature told us enough about the likely impact of those activities that we're able to combine those two and basically build a spreadsheet which estimates their impact. So like take scholarships as an example, scholarships for children to go to college. Uh, you know, a lot of these are very small programs. Uh, I would not advise uh, a tiny little program running, offering 150 scholarships a year to necessarily conduct their own primary data collection exercise and with a randomized control trial. But there's been a dozen or so studies out there that help us learn when a, when a student, a high school student gets a scholarship, how does that change the likelihood that they go to college? And there's other studies, tons of studies that tell us if someone goes to college compared to someone who doesn't go to college, how much extra earnings will, are they likely to earn later in life? So we can combine all of that to then estimate what is the impact to expect of a nonprofit which hands out a $10,000 scholarship. And then we can look to those other pieces of research and say, well, typically a $10,000 scholarship increases the likelihood of going to college by 3.4 percentage points. And going to college helps you earn $50,000 more a year. I have no idea what those numbers are, I wanna be clear, I'm just saying, you know, as an example. And so with that, we can then build an, build an estimate. And obviously we got a little bit more nuanced and detailed than that, not all scholarship programs are the same. So we tried matching up as best as we can between what a particular nonprofit is doing and who they're reaching and how much they're giving out way in scholarships to the existing evidence from the social science literature. Makes sense. And so now you're expanding from that list of 1500 to a larger universe of nonprofits. That's exciting. It is. We'll, we'll you know, we, it, it, we, we're going to go, you know, cause by cause, nonprofit by nonprofit. But the team is working hard now within Charity Navigator to figure out how to, how to go from there. One of the bigger bottlenecks is actually getting nonprofits to provide information. You'd be amazed how homeless shelters and food banks were two of the other cause areas that were where we were able to see a lot of nonprofits in the U.S. and actually build a model that was um, that was able that we were able to use for many many nonprofits. But I'm a, I was a blown away by how many food banks there are in America, which do not report 
how many meals they gave out last year and how many homeless shelters there are that don't report how many people slash beds were provided in the prior year. So all you know is their annual budget was $7 million and that's it. You don't know whether that went to like, you know, 100 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, you have no idea. Food bank with a budget of $12 million, how many meals given, no idea. That's a shame. So one of the other plans and hopes is to be working with, I mean, we're, we're doing it, it's not just a hope. We're working with Charity Navigator to help build um, better incentives and a platform to make it easier for organizations to report the essential information needed in order to do these kinds of estimates. That's wonderful. Now, Charity Navigator itself is organized as a nonprofit, a 501c3. Was Impact Matters Indeed. a nonprofit as well? Yep, yep. Impact Matters, definitely. There's no, I, I, I really don't think this is a space that is well suited to a for-profit exercise. It's, um, the, the reality is there's a market failure in this kind of information. You, know, you want this information to be publicly available. You, we want retail donors to be able to access it. We never really considered doing this as a for-profit model. I don't think that would work in the long run. And you have started at least one for-profit startup in Stick. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, the incentives there make sense. The, you know, the problem with the impact matters is I think if you're for-profit, you also have perverse incentives that could really be detrimental to the credibility of what you're doing, to the transparency of what you're doing. It's absolutely critical. Like one thing that was an ethos that's very important to us at Impact Matters was that everything is fully transparent and clear. We want, you know, we want to be criticized. It helps us improve our models. And if you're a for-profit, you're like, oh, well, no, you can't see my secret sauce. Yeah, but Stick was a, a byproduct of theories from behavioral economics about how people commit to, or often want to commit to engage in better behavior in the future, but and the kinds of things that you kind of say you want to do, but eventually when the time comes to do it, you find some excuse and you don't do it. And then when you reflect back on it, you're like, oh gosh, I wish I did that. You know, the most classic example is losing weight. I, I want to go on a diet, I'll start tomorrow. Tomorrow comes, eh, maybe the day after. And of course, later regret it. This fits for smoking, this fits for weight loss, it fits for a lot of people for exercise, a lot of other areas in life too that are not so generically. You know, work patterns and habits, um, reading, maybe, um, maybe playing less video games, maybe, who knows, everybody has their own, own, you know, area of weakness. So to speak. And so the, the idea behind stick was to give people a tool to help them commit to the behavior they want to commit to. And they commit by either putting up their reputation or some money. So if they put up their reputation, what they're doing is they're saying, that I commit to doing a certain thing. And if I don't succeed, then here's some email addresses of people who hopefully will keep me accountable. And so I want you to tell them when I succeed or fail. And hopefully just knowing that they're going to know will inspire me to do what I said I was going to do. Or the money obviously can be a bit even more binding, depending on the person, where you put up the credit card. And then if you don't do what you say you're going to do, your money goes off to wherever you say it should go to, which could be stick if you just forfeit the money to stick. Which is part of what helps stick keep the keeps the light on keeps keep the lights on. Um, it could also go to an anti charity, which is one of the popular options, where you choose a charity that you hate. So we have both sides of a lot of politically hot um, issues: gun control, abortion, the political action committees on both sides, things like that. 
I could see how that could be really motivating to someone and not not donate to their uh, opposite side views. Yeah. Indeed, indeed, that has always been it's always been a popular option. Um, and how did you decide to start that company? So that was started basically because I had done research on this question, found that the commitment devices can work, but there was a part of me which felt like, okay, that's interesting and exciting to have this study and then this kind of somewhat controlled process, see that it was effective and other people had done research as well. It's another thing to say, can this actually scale as a business and, 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 and be a bit more open to the kinds of contracts people can write? And, and I also did actually, originally, when I started it, I, I did have the vision at some point of doing research to help learn more about how to make these tools work better. And so I actually am now doing research with it. I did not in the early years, but, but I am now doing some studies with it to help learn how best to um, offer this tool, set up the tool, what types of contract terms are, are more successful and help people more. And what scale has Tick reached? I think the last I saw, we have about four to 100,000 users just over the life of Stick. Typically pick up about 30 to 40,000 a year. And then some, obviously a lot of people will come once and don't come back. So I think that's, it's been a fairly slow, steady up. No hockey stick, needless to say. There's no IPO, unfortunately. <laughs> and what, what if- Maybe, maybe, maybe someday, <laughs> but not. What have you learned from that, uh, that company? Oh, so I think, so that's a that's a tricky question because of me as a researcher. So one of I think I think I would say two things. One is a one putting on my researcher hat and the other putting on my startup hat. As a researcher, I I actually wish that we did more research in the early early days. And we got so excited and we got some early buzz that was kind of intoxicating and it was hard to think about slowing things down and let's just do a couple studies first and really dig in on whether the contract should look like this or that in a kind of lean startup kind of way, controlled, not open to the public yet. And we didn't do that. And I kind of wish we did. I think we may have been able to migrate to a more optimal contract faster. And then once we got into the mode of being a publicly um, available website, it was harder to, harder to slow things down and, and do a side study. From a startup perspective, I think there... I think in some sense, we got pushed around in the early days in unfortunate direction, which was, you know, there's a lot of employee wellness programs that were, and that, and that's still something that's very active and a vibrant part of STIC is a white label service that it provides to companies to help organize incentives, positive incentives to help um, nudge employees towards healthy behaviors. And I think that's a really important use case for stick, but it, it's one that needs to be built on top of a foundation where the core website is, is more optimized. And instead we shifted very quickly into that as the primary revenue model. I think the other, the other angst I have when I reflect back on it does, I, th I think there's some business gaps that we never were able to, you know, the, the experimentation that I mentioned that I would love, love to be, have done as a researcher I think was would have also helped stick get faster to a to a better product, and so that that kind of early stage tinkering and really simple randomized control trials back to how we started the conversation with IPA, but randomized control trials on what's going to help people succeed more, what's going to help, what's going to guide people to write a second contract and stay using the site to help them on other domains of life, and 
I think had we done more of those kinds of studies in the early days, ironically, given that that's what my day job does in other domains, I think you know we could have gone even you know had had even more users. Now, having said that, you know we're still I, I, I shouldn't say this in such a negative way. I mean we're um, we're we're quite proud of what we built. Jordan Goldberg, my co-founder with it, and Ian Ayers, um, Jordan put his heart and soul and did an amazing job building what we built, and and the fact that we still are just continuing to gather more and more users every year is, is exciting. So it sounds like you, you wish you'd done some A-B testing to tune the product and, and improve retention before you tried to put the, the gas on to sales and marketing. Yep, yep, that is true. Do you have any other advice that you would give to an aspiring founder? I mean, you've, you've started multiple organizations here, nonprofit, for-profit. What, what advice would you give someone? Know what problem you're trying to solve. I think is the the simple the simplest. Um, have have that you know as clear as you can in your mind, so that you are able to focus on thinking through whether what you're doing is really trying is really addressing that problem. It's easy to get pushed around. It's easy to kind of start one thing, have someone kind of you know, suggest to you to do something slightly different, some partner, maybe it's a funder, maybe it's a client who wants not what you're offering, but something else. And, you know, that's always tricky. Some of those can be life-changing. It can be exactly what is, needs to happen. And it could be eye-opening to shift you in a totally new direction and be like, oh my gosh, it's not what I start off to do, set off to do, but that's great. And, that, and, and let's go there. On the other hand, it could be distracting and it could take you away from the core, the core effort that you, and the core idea. So, I realize I just kind of said both sides of that is like maybe you should or should not get let yourself get pulled away, but it's to, it's to really think. I guess my advice would be to think really hard about those moments in the early stages of an organization when you're being pulled in a different direction than you set off to, and then really think hard about whether that's are you just being opportunistic to keep the lights on, or is that actually a good direction to push your entire effort, and and be thoughtful about that. And I'd also be really curious to hear your advice for individual donors, both on a strategic and a tactical level? So, um, well, there, I, I think there's, I mean, my, my advice there is surprise, surprise, follow the evidence. If it's, if it's the kind of thing that, can satis- that evidence can satisfy. There's a lot of nonprofits, I want to be clear, that I think are amazing, doing awesome work that I personally would support, but that are not the kind of groups that could produce a randomized controlled trial and you just have to use, you know, intuition, qualitative evidence about their activities and, and their place in the world and make your decision. But for the ones that are actually doing something that is in what I would call service delivery space, they're providing a service to some people who, for whatever reason, have a disadvantage, you know, and are some sort of protected group that we care about from an egalitarian perspective, from a humanitarian perspective, from a justice perspective, whatever the case is. Those usually can have some evidence on like, is it actually working? Is it doing what you set off to do? So follow that evidence. All the evidence. That's great advice. In closing, I'd love to know how people can follow you online. Uh, Sure. So on Twitter, I'm at Dean Carlin. Um, IPA is poverty-action.org is also on Twitter. I'm not quite as active on Twitter as IPA. So following us both probably makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much for coming on Startups for Good. You're doing so many amazing things. It's hard to cover it all in this short amount of time, but hopefully people can uh, follow up. Thanks for having me. It was fun talking. Yeah, thank you. 
If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.